Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. This is your host, Dan Nexon. In today's podcast, I talk with Madeline Ashby about her debut novel, VN. Madeline is a strategic foresight consultant in Toronto. She holds a master's in manga and anime and writes on related subjects at io9, Boing Boing, and Tor.com. VN is the story of Amy Peterson, a five-year-old self-replicating android who, in the blink of an eye, is forced to give up her life as a kindergartner and become a fugitive on the run with forces that want to destroy her hot on her heels. To jaded science fiction fans, this may not sound like much, but what emerges is a philosophical and political tour de force that imagines what it would be like for androids if they were, in fact, forced to live under Asimov's laws of robotics. Hi, this is Dan Nexon, and uh, today I'm talking with Madeline Ashby. Madeline, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So I always start out, and it's probably getting boring by now, by asking uh, uh, not the information that I'm going to hear, but the question, by asking our authors to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, um, I, that's a hard thing to answer, given that I'm never sure which which you know part of me people would actually like to know about. Um, my name is Madeline Ashby. I'm a science fiction writer and a strategic foresight consultant. I have two master's degrees. I speak a smattering of several languages, uh, none of them particularly well. Um, I live in Toronto. I used to live in the United States. Um, I went to Seattle University, which is a Jesuit school, which is an odd place for a science fiction writer sometimes. And, um, and now I'm here, and uh, and I have a book out called VN, which is Little V, Big N. Which is what uh, I hope we're going to be talking about uh, for most of the interview, which is a, a really terrific book, and I enjoyed it a lot. Before we get a little bit into it, though, there are some aspects of your background that I thought uh, might be of particular interest, which I, certainly I found interesting. So you say that uh, being at a small Jesuit institution was not necessarily the most obvious place for a science fiction writer. That implies to me that you always knew you wanted to be a science fiction writer or were writing science fiction back in college. Is that right? I was. Um, I had always known that I wanted to be a writer. I, um, I learned that I wanted to be a science fiction writer in college. Um, I... I, uh, I was doing an honors project, an, a departmental honors thesis on science fiction, and that was kind of when when I learned that it was what I wanted to do. So you have a background in science fiction studies then? Um, a little bit. I mean, I devoted um, most of one year to it, to um, specifically to the works of Ursula K. Le Guin, but I did a lot of background reading. Um, that's when I read my Heinlein. I read Extra Asimov during that time. I read a lot of Frank Herbert. I read a lot of um, uh, Philip Jose Farmer, um, things like that, to to sort of train me up even more than I already had been. And um, and after meeting personally when in person, that I kind of decided that this is what I wanted to do. And then uh, it also you have a significant uh, web trail, as it were. Uh, <laughs> I do, yes. Uh, and you've written for a number of very prominent uh, outlets uh, that are either directly within or engaged with the science fiction community. Do you want to yes. tell us a little bit about that? Well, I've um, I've written for Boing Boing for Creators Project, World Changing, 
Um, my short fiction has appeared in Flurb, which is Rudy Rucker's magazine, uh, Nature, The Nature, um, which is what the second thing people always ask. Nature? Like the, the science journal? Yes, that nature. So you have an exciting new novel out called VN. Uh, we've mentioned that before. Maybe you could uh, tell us a bit about the story, what kinds of basics our, our listeners will uh, need to know to understand uh, what it's about. Well, VN is the story of Amy Peterson, who is a five-year-old self-replicating humanoid robot. Um, she lives with her previous iteration, her mother, Charlotte, and her organic father, Jack, her human dad. And they live together um, in Oakland, California, in a very idyllic kind of setup um, in their own way. They, they're sort of a mixed organic synthetic family. And they uh, all of that is shattered when... Um, Amy's grandmother, Portia, shows up and and starts immediately beating on Amy's mom at kindergarten graduation. And uh, Amy wastes no Amy wastes no time when uh, when this happens and runs up on stage and eats her grandmother. And after eating her, uh, she a gains in mass proportionate to what she's just consumed, and b uh, then carries Portia as a little partition. Um, on her sort of mental drive space and, uh, and has to deal with Portia fighting for control of her own body. And they, they sort of share a journey together, um, discovering things about, um, about Amy's family and, uh, and about what life is really like for other VN who don't have the same kind of privileges that Amy does. So this is a, a fairly elaborate near future world. Um, and maybe, uh, it would be helpful for you to tell us a little bit more about, you know, what VNs are and what the world building in the story uh, involves. Well, VN are um, sort of, they are robots, but they're not necessarily robots in the traditional sense of the term. They're the machines that build them, the machines that, that they are constructed of, the, the parts that make them are all at the nanoscale. They're all um, very small. So um, they, so part of what makes them, more passable for human or more enjoyably human is the fact that they are, you know, all of those little structures that, that help their faces move and help their speech sound right and help, help them process information and so on. All of those happen at, at, um, at, at, uh, something that is closer to the scale of the human cell. Um, they are the results of, um, of a big international megachurch um, having tithed for them in the event of the rapture. They uh, wanted to leave behind some sort of help meets or companions for those who literally got left behind um, in this, in the presumed rapture. And then when the church hit financial troubles due to a big, 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 big class action lawsuit, they had to um, quickly sell a lot of um, the patents and API for all of these robots, and thus that this is why, despite the the fact that the rapture has not occurred, they are walking around out and about free. Um, so they they were initially programmed to be, um, you know, helpers and and sort of, um, you know, to to they were they were designed to sort of sop up the urges of everybody that God might not like. <laughs> or, or that this church thought that God might not like, and now they're just out and about uh, free. And the consequence of that is that they, they love humans unconditionally. 
they and one one character close to the end of the book says that uh, you you must love us like God loves us, and uh, and that's um that's one of the themes running throughout the book. Yeah. So um, just uh, for clarification, uh, how far in the future is? I mean, Vienna's not you know I'm not you know not. Um, a date, I'm not but... sure. Really. Like uh, I suppose that's a bad answer. It's I I would say that um, there's an earthquake that uh, that a lot of the plot sort of revolves around that um, should be happening any day now actually, <laughs> and and stuff. But which I but which I postulated might happen within the next fifty years or so. So what we have a sort of environment that is recognizably our own but altered in many uh, subtle and then not so subtle ways by the impact of the spread of these von Neumann uh, machines, uh, the, the VN, through the environment. I thought that was – you did a really nice job of, of creating that sense of both familiar and, and unfamiliar throughout the book. Oh, thank you. Uh, just as your protagonist is moving through a landscape which to her is familiar and yet increasingly unfamiliar. We could get into some issues of the plot. Uh, and, and that might be uh, fun to do in a bit, but there's obviously a lot thematically going on in the book. One of the things that we often see uh, in novels that involve uh, other forms of life, particularly robot life, and this goes all the way back to the creation of uh, the first sort of the you know uh, the the very origins of the robot story, right? Where robots are a um, a proxy for class issues uh, yeah. is the use of uh, artificial intelligence robots to explore themes that we often explore th- themes of class, race, and gender, right? But to do so yeah. in a way which is distinctive or slanted or infused with a fantastical or science fictional element. Uh, and I was curious whether you set out to do that or whether there were particular kinds of ideas that you thought you were exploring in VN through that trope. Um, I think that I wanted to talk about commod- the commodification of the human being in general. Um, I think that we commodify people, we reify human beings more often than not, and we sort of attach um monetary and other values to, to human beings in the same way that we attach value to objects. That's what objectification means, right? When we talk about objectifying women or men or, or objectifying uh, certain parts of their bodies or, or things like that, you know, you're turning a person into a thing that can be bought. And that's what intrigued me about writing about the uh, writing about VN and writing about uh, sort of humanoid robots in general is you're talking about a, a thinking, feeling, um, sentient organism that you buy and sell, um, and that I think that kind of makes people really, really uncomfortable um, in that they realize that we buy and sell human beings every single day, and um, sometimes that happens in illegal contexts, like things like human trafficking and so on. Um, and other times it happens, you know, just in the way that that employees are treated by by bad organizations, by bad companies, uh, or unfair companies. So I think that um, it's a that's what intrigued me about the idea was, you know, the the possibility of talking. Uh, about humans, humans as things to be bought and sold. That's really interesting. One of the things that I really liked about the book uh, was that often when these attempts kind of collapse under their own weight, right? That they, <laughs> that yeah. they uh, you know, they, that they become 
too obvious and too trite. And I didn't feel at any time that, that VN did that. Uh, in Thank fact, you. Uh, you know, it was successful enough that I, I wanted you to clarify what particular kinds of, of ideas that you were working through. And one of the reasons I, I think it, it, it succeeds well is because it maintains a certain kind of uh, ambiguity or ambivalence about a lot of the issues that it raises. Um, was that a deliberate move on your part? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought that there was enough room in the world for some nuance and for some, for some understanding of why people would want to be in relationships with VN in a non-predatory way. Um, there are a lot of good people who are in relationships with VN. Many of them are, end of, are at the end of their personal romantic line, like they have just had enough with relationships with human, with their fellow human beings, but often that's earned, you know, they've just been betrayed so many times or they've been hurt or they have a past history that a lot of people can't get behind or something like that. And, and so they turn to this sort of unconditionally loving, um, organism, um, or machine. And they, and on the other hand, there are people who use, use these unconditionally loving, um, sort of bio machines to uh to indulge in their sort of darkest desires and so on so i thought that there was room for both ends of the spectrum there and um and i wanted to be understanding of of all of the characters all at once like it's it's really hard um especially because writing Amy and writing Portia at the same time, like um, you have to be with both of them and you have to believe both of them at the same time when you're writing them. And Amy has had a really good experience of living with, with a human being and being educated by them and playing with them and so on. For the most part, she's had a pretty good experience. And, um, and whereas her grandmother, Portia has had a really phenomenally terrible <laughs> experience sometimes. And she's, and and more to more to the point, she just has no respect for humanity, no regard for humanity whatsoever. <laughs> and and so you have to really believe both of those women at the same time. You have to believe in what they're saying, uh, even when they contradict each other. And I think one of the things that you do well is, is make both of their reactions plausible consequences, not only of their their history, but of the the system in which they're embedded, um, which. Uh, is I think it's easy to wind up sort of giving disparate psychological explanations for human behavior, but to see both of them as having responded to a, a flawed uh, system of how VN are integrated or not integrated or used or treated with respect, uh, I think is a more more complicated kind of narrative endeavor. Uh, one of the things that, that struck me or that I, you know, I think any kind of book like this raises um, comparisons with, uh, and you've already, some of the names you've already mentioned when you talked about your, your, your years uh, studying science fiction, right? That there, there are real shades of play on Asimov uh, mm-hmm. in yeah. this book. And then also um, uh, it bears resemblances to some of Le Guin's writings about uh, using science fiction to deal with uh, themes of commodification, objectification, uh, uh, gender, race, etc. Yeah. So uh, I was wondering uh, how you, that's, is that a conscious, uh, you know, I guess it's unavoidable, right, that you would engage with these figures, but, but what kinds of ways do you see yourselves, yourself as in dialogue with them? Um, I, I definitely like Le Guin's writing a lot better than I like Asimov's writing. <laughs> um, I would rather be compared 
uh, to her. <laughs> um, 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 I feel that when I'm reading Asimov, I, I, I love the ideas and it, and I often just cannot stand the execution. Um, I find it occasionally, uh, pretty dry and kind of, you know, it, it doesn't, that, that dialogue is not how humans talk <laughs> and, and stuff. So, um, I try to write, um, more naturalistically in the same way that, that Le Guin does. Le Guin's big literary hero is actually Virginia Woolf, which I think people don't, who haven't really studied her don't necessarily know. And when you know that a lot of her writing makes a lot more sense in terms of how she goes about things like exposition and, um, sharing ideas and how she illustrates, um, the the social realities of her imaginary world um and so i always just try to keep her in keep her in mind keep Le Guin in mind who is also keeping wolf in mind i like Le Guin better than i like wolf but that's just me um uh so it's whether or not i'm in in dialogue with these writers i think everybody is always when you're whenever you're writing a story that that shares so many themes and so many ideas with so many other works that have gone before you you're always you are sort of always already engaged in a in an in a, an if then con or not an if uh, an old new contract right you're you're always establishing what you always have to lay down what you know about a theme or a genre or what have you, and then you you add to it in your own way. I'm not trying to, you know, when I wrote VN, I was not trying to say like, oh, and by the way, Isaac Asimov is wrong or something. That's you know, I'm not out there to to like prove anybody wrong or write or stand inside anybody's camp. It's just that these were issues that I hadn't seen explored, um, aside from maybe in things like. Um, like anime, actually, <laughs> I found that um, the more nuanced descriptions of what the uh, and depictions of what uh, life as a what life as a consumer object would be like were actually um, sort of better depicted by things like Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, the, the animated television series that's related to the longstanding Ghost in the Shell media property. Um, there, there are episodes of that series that deal so succinctly and so painfully with what it is to be a thing that is bought um, that I was just blown away. And it surprised me that, like, you know, the longstanding examples of robot fiction in our genre really don't discuss what it feels like to have that happen. It's always about, you know, can we tell if it's a robot or not? And then endless debates about sentience. And you actually have a wonderful, uh, I don't know if it's a throwaway line that kind of, uh, I thought was a, a kind of signpost of, you know, we're not going to get stuck in philosophical debates about that, uh, in the book. Um, but I did think, I mean, when I made the, when I asked you about Asimov and Le Guin, uh, I, my real purpose was to sort of see – I read some of what's happening at the end as if uh, you uh, approached the kinds of tropes that Asimov lays out, you know, particularly the, what's now become a cliche, the three laws of robotics. Mm-hmm. And you thought about uh, with a kind of you know, a more critical perspective, what would it actually mean for – uh, the sentient enemies, uh, the sentient enemies, the sentient entities on which those laws were imposed. What would it right. do to their personhood? Um, which is the kind of concern that somebody like Le Guin uh, might have approaching those topics. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. No, it, it it was definitely informed by sort of um, by a, by a certain feminist ethic and by a certain um, understanding of of 
um, sort of how how certain relationships can be abusive and still loving at the same time, <laughs> like how uh, how things like limited, you know, limited cognition, which essentially is what a lot of what most VN have um, when it comes to humans, that kind of blindness, that, that kind of big human shaped blind spot that they have is, a, is its own way, a kind of oppression. Right. Um, and, and they keep going back no matter how much it hurts and, and stuff. So I definitely wanted to, to look at, you know, what would actually make you obey a human being? What would make you leap in? What would make you push them out of the way of an oncoming vehicle? Um, what would make you so devoted uh, to them that you that that you had to do these things? And and you know how would how would it feel to not do those things? How what would be the consequences of disobedience? And could you even fathom the idea of disobedience? So, um, that's, those were kind of the things that, that were preying on me as I, as I wrote it. I'm sorry, I was going to, and again, it's fun that I can edit this, but I was going to ask you a, a question about that. And then I got lost thinking about, uh, uh, Kant and whether you could be free by following rules. Um, it's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. so, um, so it's the so, best kind of science fiction, right? Because it, it yeah, bring well, in, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was going to say that, you know, it's, it's unsurprising that you got mentally lost while thinking about Kant because that's like the murkiest of, of the murky. Um, oh, but I remember what I was going to ask you, which is, um, that, uh, it wasn't Kant. It's actually, uh, more, um, uh, Haraway, right. Which is that, um, it's without, I don't think we have to give away any spoilers. And I, I, this is a book that I really don't want us to spoil because so much of the enjoyment comes from just following how the plot unfolds in the way that some of, I think our expectations really get played with, uh, Mm -hmm. effectively in the narrative. Uh, is that uh, it does seem at some level like the answer you come back to is is an answer that has to do uh, in a obviously in a science fiction setting, but an answer that centers around hy- hybridity and hybridization. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, as a as the only way of kind of reconciling uh, these kinds of conflicting impulses, or at least coming to terms with them. Uh, it sounds to me like uh, that was also uh, part of the the idea behind it then. Well, I had actually read uh, quite a bit of Haraway um, as I was sort of putting together the idea. I had, done a, I had done my first master's in Japanese animation, fan studies, and cyborg theory. So naturally I had read a lot of – I had read and reread and then reread and reread again – the cyborg manifesto and then some of the, some of, uh, her other works and, and so on. So that idea of, um, you know, that idea of hybridity and that, that idea of reconciling different aspects of the self into the whole, right. Um, and understanding yourself, understanding the self as a series of disparate parts, each of which function at different levels at different times, but are still recognizably the self, um, uh, that really appealed to me. Um, and I think that it's, it's an idea that I have seen repeated 
in other stories, right? Um, it's, it's the reconciliation of the darker aspects of the self, right? You know, you could, uh, you can read Haraway into it and you, you could also probably read a lot of Jung into it or something like that, where, you know, it's essentially the conquering of the, the stories in many ways, the conquering of, of that darker self through reconciliation with it, through, you know, recognizing that, you know, sometimes this, these impulses are there to help you, um, on occasion. Um, sometimes the, the person who is sometimes the, the, uh, your, your evil grandmother is right (laughs) and, and, and stuff for as, for as much as you may not like her. Um, uh, she's, she can be right. One of the things I struggled with, with Portia was the fact that she was pretty much always factually right, but she was culturally, uh, morally and ethically wrong. And Amy was often culturally, morally, and ethically right and factually wrong <laughs> and, and stuff. So I, that was one of the ways that I balanced them out. And, and together they, uh, you get kind of this odd performance of a human being or this odd performance of, of, a, of a self-interested actor. So you had mentioned before, and you've, you've raised now a couple of times, uh, your, that you have a background in anime studies or anime and manga studies. And um, one of the things that I think is very striking about VN is how a lot of the, the imagery, uh, both kind of the, some of the ideas, but also the literal action of the scene and the settings uh, seem to draw upon uh, imagery that's common in anime. So, so even the, the, the very shocking, uh, image that really gets the story in full motion, which you've mentioned, right? The consumption, you know, that, that, uh, how, um, you know, Portia is consumed (laughs) by, uh, Amy, her granddaughter. Um, that is the kind of imagery that we, I think often associate with anime, but not so much with Western speculative fiction, fantasy, except for in a kind of the fairy tale id. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and how much uh, were those kinds of, uh, how much does that creep into the story in general? Well, I think it, it creeps into my work in the same way that it creeps into, um, to, to other, to the, the work of other writers who were influenced by things like the, like the pulps or things like Lovecraft or Howard or, or, or something like that. You know, instead of the pulps, this was what I had instead of the pulps, I had anime and manga. Right. So my renditions of certain things like violence or, you know, love scenes or, or something like that, um, are influenced by, by that tradition rather than, um, than other, I guess, more traditional Western influences, because, you know, at, at, at the key time when I would have been interested in, in something like the pulps, I was interested in anime and manga instead, and I found them more compelling and, and so on. So that's, that's how I got interested in them. Um, you know, people say that the golden age of science fiction is always 12. And at 12, I was actually reading things like, um, I was, I was reading at that time, I think all of like the vintage imprint. I think that I was reading, things like the English patient and Robert Girardi novels. And, um, like at 12, I was, I read 
the the most the most fantasy oriented book I read at the age of twelve was Margaret Mayhew's The Changeover. Other than that, it was actually um, kind of painfully mainstream literature um, with brushed covers and everything. And and you know, I was reading A Tale of Two Cities at that time. And and by the time I graduated into um, more genre literature, it came from my friends who were into anime and manga. And, um, and so I just, you know, you read what your friends, what your friends read, you, you, you watch what your friends watch so that the, so that all of you can talk about it together. Right. And, um, that's what, that's what I was into. And I, I managed to skip over huge amounts of what is otherwise very influential literature, uh, to a lot of other people. Well, I think it, uh, we've certainly benefited from that because it creates a, a very, uh, you know, a, an interesting and, and nothing is really unique under the sun, but certainly a, a, a nicely uh, different configuration of elements than I think uh, we see in a lot of uh, other work. Uh, so, um, you know, that's a good thing. Um, one of the things, you know, you're, you're sort of, uh, I hate to do this to you, but um, but every author who I've talked to so far has uh, – a kind of complicated relationship with the idea of writing a genre, right? Oh, really? So, so well, you know, some, some people, um, you know, really kind of embrace the idea that they live in love, uh, writing creativity within, uh, what they see as a, as a set of genre elements, right? Um, right. other people I think are, um, unhappy with the idea that they are ghettoized or, or, um, dismissed as genre authors. Right. And I, you know, I mean, we're talking about people who are very often very successful. So it's not like, you know, their, their concern is that nobody's reading them. (laughs) Uh, It sounds to me like you have a very kind of, uh, like you might be be somebody who has a very um, self-aware or reflect or self-reflexive understanding about your engagement uh, with having written uh, a quote unquote genre novel uh, because of this different kind of trajectory of getting into uh, this type of, of, of fiction. So I, th- I thought you might have some interesting uh, comments about, about that or some thoughts about what it means to write genre or science. Yeah. Fiction. I, I think that it's also, yeah, no, that's, that's definitely true. I, I try to be as aware as I can um, largely in part because um, I, I just am not of that generation for whom it was ghettoized. Right. I mean, like I, I am of the generation that, you know, for whom, you know, The Matrix was the big popcorn movie that, that, uh, of 1999, right? Like we, that's, you know, I am of the generation where, um, it's not unusual that the big tentpole, big tentpole film and big tentpole novels be genre literature, right? Um, taking the kids out to see Harry Potter or the Lord of the Rings or the Hunger Games or something like that is, is incredibly normal as far as I'm concerned. And it's as normal as it used to be to take the kids out for a, uh, you know, a swords and sandals epic or something like that. Right. Um, once upon a time. And, and so I'm aware of the fact that for a lot of other writers, they got sort of shat upon, for writing in genre and they were, they were looked down upon and, and so on. Um, and, and that, you know, for a long time you could be looked down upon for, for even for studying it. Right. Um, but now I don't think that that's the case. Like I was at a party recently that my, my agency put on my, um, 
my literary agents uh, put on this party that they do every year. And uh, I, you know, I met other agents or other authors in the roster, you know, other authors who are represented by the same company. And, uh, and they said, Oh, who are you? And, and I said, Oh, I'm Madeline Ashby. I'm a science fiction writer. And this, this guy who was like the portrait of, um, mainstream literature writer, um, there were, there was like leather on the lapels and everything, right? um, horn rim glasses, the whole nine. And, and he said to he said to me, Oh, you're going to make so much more money than I will. And I was like, well, I, maybe that would be nice, <laughs> but, but there's this perception. I think there's this perception among some mainstream literary writers that, you know, that science fiction, you know, no matter what its quality will still earn money, earn fans, earn engagement, earn attention. And for, for some of those people, yeah, they probably think that it's not earned or, or whatever, or that it's just all eyeball kicks or, or all action or, or what have you and, and so on. But on some level, I suspect that they are also jealous. Um, which is sad because, you know, I, I, uh, for, before I wanted to be a science fiction writer, I wanted to be a mainstream writer, right? I wanted to, I just wanted to be a writer. And I think keeping that kind of ambition at at the center of your heart is, is more helpful than, than thinking about what, you know, what genre you would like to be part of, right? Uh, the genre ends up being a thing that, that marketers decide on, on a certain level, if you're writing in between genres, that's kind of what happens to you. I mean, look at the history of, of somebody like JG Ballard or, or William Gibson, like Gibson became known as a science fiction writer. And now he writes things that he deliberately sets about five years ago (laughs) and so on. And now what he is, is what he kind of has always been is an exposer of worlds, right? He opens up different worlds to you. And that's what any good writer of any genre should do. They should open up new experiences to you. Um, so I'm aware of the fact that, um, that there are people who don't want to be, um, sort of pigeonholed into, into one genre or another, or they don't want to be thought of as quote genre writers or, or what have you. They just, you know, and honestly, every, every writer just wants to be thought of as a good writer. That's in, really that's all that you should aspire to, I think. But, um, but I really don't, it really doesn't bother me because I, at the end of the day, I still get to write for a living, which is so much more than anybody, than, than most people get to do. I mean, I literally get to do my favorite thing for money. (laughs) And that is, that is so far from, from most people's lived experiences that I just, I just know that I'm really lucky to be able to do it no matter what other people have to say about the genre. So so I have to uh, – the other thing I sort of – it's not one of these things I feel guilty about asking because I feel like it puts you on the spot, but that you would be a really interesting person to hear some ideas about. Uh, you know, As we've mentioned and as you've talked about, VN has an aesthetic which uh, we can trace back to uh, Japanese speculative fiction and fantasy or at least you know, anime. I, I feel all, often weird talking about anime as a genre because, of course, it's so <laughs> fragmented and subgenre and niche marketed that that's, I think, a very kind of – American perspective. Um, well, it's medium and not a genre, right? Like the medium trans- transports the uh, transports the genre, right? It, the, the animation is itself a, a medium in the same that film animation is a medium. You like you never look you never talk about American film animation as a genre, right? Okay, but, so 
So that that's good. That that makes my question sound less idiotic. I think, which is that um, we've seen really a lot of commentary about the uh, the spread of anime aesthetics, uh, and you can see that I think significantly, although in a hybrid sense, in an increasing number since the early '90s of American cartoons, things that my daughter watches, for example. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, uh, you know, the anime aesthetic has really become cool. Lots of students now learn Japanese not because they want to do business in Tokyo, but because they want to be able to understand anime and manga. Um, what are the kind of long-term effects, or what do you think is going to happen with um, sort of traditional literary that is written on paper, not literary in terms of literature, since science fiction and fantasy, as that aesthetic becomes uh, more and more well-established uh, in, in North American culture? Um, I think primarily what it'll change is the style of exposition. Um, what I notice about anime is that exposition is done in a really radically different way. Like you are often just dropped in the middle of a situation and expected to learn about it. There's very little, um, info dumping. Um, and when there is, it's, it's kind of fast and on the fly and it's done in like a couple of lines. Um, and so that's what, that's what I tend to focus on is, is that uh, when I think about what I wish I could learn from, from anime and manga, it's, it's, you know, there's the action, there's the emotional engagement, there's telling a bunch of different types of stories. That's pretty cool. But the, um, but the exposition I think is the, or lack thereof is the one that I wish more people would latch onto. So um, as I've said before, I really enjoyed the book, uh, and uh, it sounds like it's doing pretty well. So you must be excited. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty exciting. It's 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 uh, it's um, when I tell people like the numbers, they're pretty impressed. So that's a good sign, I guess. I actually have my partner look them up. I don't look at them myself because uh, my partner is also a writer, and so he is always looking up his own sales numbers, and so. I just ask him to look at mine too. <laughs> well, you know, you're talking to an academic, so you know, when we have impressive sales numbers, uh, they are microscopic <laughs> by, <laughs> by the standard. So I'm impressed by anything uh, at this point. Uh, but I'm I'm very pleased, uh, and it is a terrific book, and I really think people ought to uh, run out and read it. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what's next? Well, what's next is the sequel to VN, which is called ID. And it takes place from the perspective of one of the supporting cast members of the uh, first novel, Javier. And Javier, it's told from his perspective, and Javier is on a quest for sort of redemption and revenge um, in this book. He It takes him out into the deserts of New Mexico, and uh, he, meets, he meets up with some interesting people. And the world of Vien kind of gets blown out a little bit. You kind of get to see some of the more long-term consequences of, of both what happened in the first book and, and uh, the Vien having been around as long as they are. So, so that's, well, that's, that's exciting. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, sometimes, you know, one gets worried about serialitis. Right or serialitis about people yeah. returning to to areas because you know to, to to worlds because they're comfortable and because people want to read them. But I think it, it sounds to me, uh, both intellectually and narratively, there's a lot more to explore here, and I'm really looking forward to it. So. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm. So am I. I'm. I'm hoping that people enjoy it just as much, if not more. So. All right. Well, thanks very much, um, and uh, uh, hope to talk to you again sometime. Yeah. Thanks. You have been listening to the New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy interview with Madeline Ashby about her novel, The End. 
This episode was recorded on August 24th, 2012. So long.